Welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. And again, it is so great to have you join with us today. Whether you're in person or you're online, we are delighted that you're with us today. Today, I've got a special message and an incredible opportunity for every single person that calls Life Church home. So if you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of James, I want to talk to you today about two chairs, just two chairs. The book of James, James chapter two, actually, two chairs in just a moment. You see, the Bible says, actually, Jesus, if you read the gospel of Luke, and I love Luke's uh, detail of the life of Christ, it says that Jesus talks about chairs. Uh, there's a whole study. Matter of fact, a couple years ago, I did an entire series on chairs and what Jesus said about chairs and how chairs are important because chairs tell a story, not because of the physical chair itself, but the person that's seated in that chair. Where someone sits, Jesus says, reveals character. It can reveal generosity. It can reveal arrogance. It can reveal humility. You know, Jesus said that if you're invited to sit at a table, that you should take the lowest seat at the table, wherever that might be, and not take the highest seat. Because if you take the highest seat and you're asked to move to a different chair, to a different seat, it's somewhat embarrassing. Better to sit at a low chair, at a, at a lower place, and be invited to the, the guest of honor seat, invited to a higher chair, than to, well, be demoted demotivated, should I say, to a lower chair. It, it, Jesus talks about this, that, that the chair's value comes not from the chair itself, but from the person that's seated in that chair, because chairs represent people. Again, today I want to talk to you about two chairs, and you can kind of cut to the chase. It's about two people. You see, because you never know who is going to sit in a chair. Today at Life Church, we've got thousands of chairs in four different locations throughout our state. And you never know who's going to come in and sit in a seat. You never know who's going to come in and sit in a chair. You just don't know who you may be encountering, maybe even today. You know, the Washington Post did an experiment several years ago where they took a, a violinist and they placed his violinist in a DC metro station, the, the subway system there. Now, if you've been through DC, through the subway system, or quite frankly, any subway system, you don't really want to spend a lot, a lot of time in the subway. You kind of want to get in and get out. It's public transportation, and sometimes it can, it can be sketchy at moments, or, or it can kind of smell, or whatever. It, it just depends. You just kind of, you just get in and get out. And so people are kind of on the, the busy part of their day. And so this violinist, for 45 minutes, began to play this classical uh, piece of, of music. I believe it was Bach. For about 45 minutes he did, and about 2,000 people approximately passed by this violinist. Again, this was an experiment. It was being watched. Only six people six people of the 2,000 people that passed by this violinist actually stopped. And of the six people that stopped, $32 was kind of thrown into the violin cases, which to say, hey, we enjoy what you're playing. This is great. Keep going on. But really, there was no notice. Really, there was no applause. Really, there's no net recognition. The name of the violinist? One of the greatest violinists in, the North, in North America, a guy named Josh Bell. Josh Bell was playing one of the most intricate pieces of this classical music. He was playing a violin that appraised at about $3.4 million. 
Matter of fact, he had just played two nights before in Boston at a concert hall sold out at $100 a pop. You see, it just goes to show you, you never know who you're sitting next to. You never know who is sitting in a seat next to you. And the Bible talks about this. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says it this way, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and a fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Verse 3, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Skip on down to verse number 8 and verse number 9. For if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. I want to unpack this just for a minute. First of all, in verse 1, James introduces this word to us, favoritism. Now, again, he's speaking to people that are inside the church. He's speaking to Christ followers. He addresses it right there at the very beginning. Brothers and sisters, believers, and Jesus Christ do not show favoritism. That word favoritism in the original Greek means to exalt one another at another's expense. To exalt one at the expense of of another. So you're raising one person up while you're lowering one person down. What, what's wrong with this? Well, he unpacks it. He says, first of all, it's inconsistent with Christ's teachings. Secondly, it results, verse 4, from evil thoughts. He goes on to say that it's a product of selfish motives. It shows a lack of mercy. It belittles those that are made in the very image and likeness of God. It's hypocritical. And verse 9, he just says, it's just plain sin. How many times have you walked into church and you've thought, I don't really know that person. I don't really, they may be, <laughs> they're a little sketchy or they're a little different. Or, or I'm not sure if I want my kids playing with those kids or whatever it may be. That's what he's talking about. When we all come together and we all come to church there should never be a, hey, you sit here and you sit there. The, the only time at any of our campuses that we ever have assigned seats are for parents with small kids. And that's only so that we can help serve them in case the baby cries or needs to be changed or anything. Because children are so important to God. They're important to us. And so we want to make sure they're VIPs. That's it. Besides that, sit anywhere you'd like to sit and, 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 and enjoy yourself. But when we walk in and we say, well... <laughs> I don't know, yeah, you over here, you're over there, you get a good seat, you get a less than good seat. That's favoritism. That's exalting someone over another person at someone else's expense. It's just wrong. Second thing he says in verse 2 is that the context in which this favoritism is taking place is at a meeting. Now, that word meeting, if you go back into the context, it's a word that they would use for synagogue. It was what we would call church. It's a church setting. 
This isn't a private home setting. This isn't a, a social setting. This isn't at the country club. This isn't out in the world. This isn't the, you know, the evils of the world. Sometimes it's so easy for us in the church to blame the world and to kind of put it on them. But the truth of the matter is, this is happening inside the doors of the church. This is where we say that everyone is welcome. Everybody's welcome. That Jesus loves everyone, that God loves everyone, that the gospel is for everyone. It's good news for everyone who believes. Yet, in the, our own context, James is saying, be careful. In your meeting, in your church service, are you showing favoritism? Are you saying to one person sit here and another person sit there? He says that you differentiate people. Look at verse 2. By quote-unquote fine clothing. Now, I'm reading from the NIV. If you go to the King James, it uses the word attire. What he is saying here, and if, as you begin to kind of do a deep dive, it's speaking to the status of the individual. So it's no different than today. Those people that have a lot tend to dress nicer than people that don't. You know, it's like going back to the violinist in the D.C. metro station. Again, when you see him in the context of a, of a, very, of a performing arts center in a downtown area, uh, had he been in a tuxedo at the Kennedy Performing Arts Center in D.C., the response would have been totally different than he's sitting down or standing along just the side of the wall in the D.C. metro. He's dismissed there in that context, but he's elevated in the concert hall when he's dressed finely. Same thing is true. You see someone coming into church and you see the way they're dressed. And so it, it denotes a certain amount of status. It denotes a certain amount of class. It denotes a certain amount of here's where they are on the pecking order. Here they must have a lot of money because I saw the car they drove or I saw the clothes that they wear or I saw the watch that they had on or do you see the size of the ring that was on her hand? Whatever it may be, do you see how their kids are dressed and, and this fine attire? It, it, it speaks to status. And the Roman culture would have been pervasive in this first century. And it even pervaded the synagogue culture. That's the reason why James is talking to the church. And Roman culture was based on three things. First of all, class. You're born into a particular class. You don't choose it, you're born into it. But within every class, there was a family. So depending on what family that you're in in that class is a pecking order as well. And then how much money that you have is a third criteria of your family within a particular class puts you in a different strata within that class. In the first century in Roman culture, there were only less than about 10% of people that were in the high class. There was maybe 1% to 2% that were middle class and everybody else was low class. It was very elite. It was very high. It was very much haves and have nots. And what James is saying is, is that we're measuring people up. We're, we're checking them out by how they dress or how they look or whatever the, the social cues that we see coming from them. If we're honest, probably we've all been guilty of kind of quote unquote judging the book by its cover only to be embarrassed only to be found to be like, I ah, wish I wouldn't have said that. Beware, James says, someone coming into your midst in fine clothing, in status. The problem, verse 3 says, you begin to dif differentiate the people within the context of the church based upon what you perceive their value is. 
based on who they are, based on what you think they can do for you, based on their place in society, based on how the world views them, you began to put them in this pecking order. And so to one person you go, here's a seat for you, but for another person, stand or sit at my feet. Again, <laughs> the feet are kind of dirty. I don't know if you like feet or not, but they're kind of a dirty thing anyhow. And, and, but especially in the first century when they didn't wear clo uh, closed shoes, socks really weren't around. I don't even know if they were even invented. I'd say probably a good question to, to look up sometime. But they're sandals. And they've got these feet that are caked and dust and mud. That's the reason why every time you would go into a, a place that was a pretty fine establishment, there was someone with a, a basin of water and, and, a, and, and, and a towel that would wash your feet. It was a servant's position and you would walk in and they would wash your feet so you would come in clean. So to sit at my feet is not something that you really want to do. To sit at my feet is a very low place to be. Not only that, but I don't even have a chair for you. Because I've given the chair to someone else. In essence, James says this, it's just wrong to have only one seat in the church. You ever thought about that? I know I'm stretching a little bit, but not much. It's wrong to have a seat for this person, but not for this person. It's wrong just to have one seat. And you may go, well, I would never judge somebody based on their, on, on, on their clothing or based upon externals, but yet we do. Well, these people, man, they've been serving Jesus for a long time, so they have a seat. But what about the person who comes in that's far away from God? Do you have a seat for them? It's less about the idea of having a physical seat sometimes than it is an emotional place and a welcoming place and a welcoming environment that says, you're welcome regardless who you are, regardless where you come from, regardless if you agree with me or you disagree with me, regardless if you're dead in your sins or you're so full of the Holy Spirit that it's flowing over, there is a seat and a place for you. James says it's wrong to only have one seat, to only have a seat for the kind of people you want, for the kind of people that check your boxes, for the kind of people that look like you and feel like you and are like you. And I'm not talking about inclusion today. I'm just talking about good old-fashioned gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. So what's the solution? Pretty simple. Every church should have two seats. It's the title of my message. Two chairs, two seats, every church. You see, that seat should not be, or any seat in the church shouldn't be based upon money or based upon status, based upon how long somebody's been in the church. Well, my grandparents, they were in this church, and my parents have been in this church, and I'm a third-generation person in this church. Great, glad, I'm, I'm really happy for you. You know, do you want a gold star and a box of Mars bars? What do you want, right? I mean, it shouldn't matter whether you've been saved for all of 10 minutes or you've been saved for 100 years. You're welcome. There's a seat in a place for you. Every church should have two seats. So what are those two seats? I'm so glad you asked. Seat number one is what I call a your welcome seat. Your welcome seat. This is a seat that you help provide, a seat that you pay for. You know, Life Church started in one location in Germantown in the fall of 2000, about 20 years ago, at Germantown High School with 35 people. It began in the cafeteria in these blue plastic chairs. 
And then from there, went right down the road, down Mequon Road, to be able to get into this storefront, about 4,000 square feet. It had a couple of classrooms and had a room that was about 2,000 square feet, had two toilets, a men's restroom and a women's bathroom, just two single stalls. And there was about 100 folding chairs that was in this room that was 2,000 square feet. No stage, no video, none of that. The, the audio desk was, was a folding table. And the, the, the sound system had been given and donated by another church, kind of put together a bit hodgepodge, but, but it worked. And people were vibrant. But you know what? Those chairs were folding chairs. They were padded folding chairs. They cost $29 a piece. And they bought 100 of them. And they believed that God would begin to help them to reach their community. So they, they, that, that group of 35 bought more than what they needed. And so they, they bought these, these folding chairs and, and for $29 a piece. And they paid for a seat. It was people like Kathy Christ and Mike Rockwall and Barb Booth and the Heisers and the Stoffels and the Rons and the Snows and the Seiferts and the Galganitises. I can go on and on. They came together and said, this is what we believe there should be a vibrant church in the Germantown area of the metropolitan area of Milwaukee. And so they purchased a seat. They believed in that. And that's, that's the first seat that's there. It's a, your welcome seat. It's a seat that you provide. It's a seat that you pay for. And today, in just a couple minutes, you're going to get an opportunity to be able to do just that, to buy a seat. Some of you have never had the privilege to be able to buy a seat at church, and I'm going to give you that opportunity because I need about 1,000 seats at four campuses as we expand. Isn't this great? In the middle of the world kind of shutting down, the church is moving forward. In the middle of everybody pulling back, we're moving forward because we believe as we set out a seat, God will fill it with a soul. It's just real simple. It's just faith exhibited because every church shouldn't have just one seat. They should have two. So the first seat is a, your welcome seat. It's a seat that you pay for. The second seat is what I call a thank you seat. It's a seat that is provided not by yourself, for yourself, but was provided for you by someone else. It's someone that said, you know what, I'm not just going to provide a seat for myself. I'm going I'm to pay for a seat for someone else. I'm gonna, it's, a, it's a seat where somebody sits in and says, thank you. Thank you for providing a seat for me. Thank you, Kathy Chris, for providing a seat for me. Thank you, Mike Rockwall, for providing a seat for me. Thank you, Ron family, for providing a seat for me. Thank you, Snow family, for providing a seat for me. Thank you, whoever you are at Life Church, for providing a seat for me. Thank you. I didn't pay for this seat. I, 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 I didn't even, I, I, maybe when this building was built, I wasn't even alive. Maybe when this building was built, I wasn't even in a right relationship with Christ. Maybe I came in and I sat in that seat, that thank you seat, and I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and my life was changed. And I just want to say thank you. Can I just be honest with you? In 2002, there was a seat for Tammy and I. We first came to Life Church and sat in the thank you seats. That brave group of men and women, those lion chasers, those people that would take on hell with a water gun, that believed that God could and that he would and that he should do something great in this area of the city, had great faith, and they provided a seat for us. And you know what you do when you're provided a seat? You say thank you. Thank you for the seat. But what else do you do? You, as you go along, you buy a your welcome seat. 
I'm going to purchase a seat for someone else. I'm going to purchase a seat for someone else. Such seat was purchased for me. I'm going to purchase a seat for someone else because no church should have one seat. Every church should have two seats. You're welcome. You buy that seat for yourself. And thank you. You buy it for someone else that yet to come to faith in Christ. And today, that's what I want to challenge you with. Whether you're online or whether you're in person, that you would take a couple of minutes and that you would say, you know what? Basically, I wish it was $29, but we've moved from those folding chairs to these, these nice padded seats, which are a little bit more comfortable. I think everybody would agree with that. And they're 50 bucks. And right now, because we're expanding in Milwaukee and we're expanding in Appleton and we're expanding at Brookfield and we, we are, uh, uh, are in the Germantown campus, uh, we, we, well, we, we've got quite a few seats there. We're providing new seats and providing opportunities for people yet far away from Jesus to come in. So I'm asking you today for you to think, hey, can I buy a seat for myself? $50. And then can I, in turn, buy a seat for someone else? Maybe you're a young couple. Maybe you buy a seat for you and your spouse, and that's, that's 100 bucks. That's a lot of money. $50 is a lot of money. But you go, you know what? We're going to provide a seat for another young couple. We're going to believe that we're going to do it. So we're going to buy four seats. We're going to buy two for us, and we're going to two, you know, your welcome seats, and then we're going to buy two thank you seats. Maybe you're a family of four, and you'd go, hey, man, I... I, we're going to buy one for our family and so to provide that seat. Maybe you're at the Germantown campus. You go, yeah, but at the Germantown campus, we're not, inv- and, and we're, we're not purchasing new seats. But probably if you're at the Germantown campus, you may or may not have even paid for the seat that you're in. So maybe you just want to pay for some thank you seats for another campus. See, it's all about kingdom. It's all about evangelism. It's all about truly. I have seen this happen over and over and over and over again. When we exhibit faith, when we provide seats, God begins to fill them. It's not crazy. It's not goofy. It's Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through. We're never going to show favoritism to the best of our ability at Life Church. We're going to have a seat for everybody. And if anybody's going to stand, it's going to be those of us that are, are, are the most mature in the room. If anyone's going to sit on the floor, it's going to be the pastors. It's going to be the servants. It's going to be the leaders in the church that we're going to give up our seats for other people. And I, and, and, but, but, but the truth of the matter is, is that today you're going to have an opportunity so, to give. And you may say, hey, I'm a business person. Pastor, sometimes this happens. What, 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 whatever doesn't come in, let me know. Well, maybe just in this moment, say, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? Maybe God wants you to, to, to provide more seats than what we even need at this point in time. Because who knows, maybe there's another campus opportunity that's right around the corner that we're about to find out about that we don't even think about. Two seats. You're welcome. You provide a seat for yourself. And thank you. You provide a seat for someone who's yet to come into faith, at, even attend a live church service. I want to close with this. It's a story by Dr. Chuck Swindoll. He's one of my favorite authors. Dr. Swindoll wrote this. I read it. It, it was in a book called Seasons of Life, 1984 is when I think it, think it was. It's called The Life-Saving Station. This is what these two seats are all about. Listen to this. On a dangerous seacoast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one boat, but a few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. 
With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many, many lives were saved by this brave band of men and women who faithfully worked as a team in and out of this life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place, and some of those who had been saved in it as well as others along the seacoast wanted it to become associated with this little life-saving station. They were willing to give their time and their energy and their money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased. New crews were trained. The station that was once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow, but some of its members were unhappy that the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. So emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture and rough handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated classy systems were now installed. And the hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for the additional equipment and furniture and systems and appointments. And by its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place and its objectives had begun to shift and it was now used as a sort of clubhouse. It was an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful and calming the disturbed rarely occurred by now. Fewer members were now even interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. And the original goal of the, of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations. In fact, there was a, a liturgical lifeboat preserved in a room called the Room of Sweet Memories with soft, indirect lighting, which helped to hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. And about this time... A large ship was wrecked off the coast and boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, terribly sick and lonely. Others were different, quote unquote, from the majority of the club members. And the beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. And a special new committee saw that a, that a shower house that would be immediately built outside and away from the club. So the victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before they came inside. And at the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings, which resulted in division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all the involvements with the shipwreck victims because it was too unpleasant. It's a hindrance to our social life. It's opening our doors to the folks who are not of the quote-unquote right kind. And as you'd expect, some still insisted upon saving lives. That was their primary objective. Their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help regardless of their club size, beauty, or decor. They were voted down and told that they wanted to save lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters. They could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, and they did. And as years passed, the new, the new station experienced the same old changes. It, it evolved into yet another club, and yet another life-saving station has begun, and history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with the saving of lives. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but now most of the victims are not saved. And every day they drown at sea, and so few seem to care. So very few. Every time I read this, probably a dozen times over the 18, almost 18 years that I pastored here, I've incorporated this in a message because I want us never to forget. doesn't matter how great God blesses us and how much he expands us. We are a life 
saving station. We are here for hurting people. We are here to bring help and healing to hopeless, broken people. Regardless, we're here to say bring in the halt and the lame and the infirm and the sick and all those who need prayer and all those who need help and all those who need healing, not because we're the answer, but because he is. And the only way we can do that is if we have a seat for those people. So today, would you help? Today, would you ask the Holy Spirit what you're supposed to do? Maybe you're just to provide a you're welcome seat. Provide a seat for yourself. Maybe you're to provide a seat for yourself and for someone else and do a thank you seat as well. You may go, man, I just think you've kind of reduced this down. Yeah, I've just made it tangible. I've just made it something that every one of us can do. Every one of us can do. Because the Bible's really clear if you want to read on the book of James. It says to tell your brother or your sister to go and be warm and well-fed and you have the ability to help them and you help them not, you hold back from them. Woe to you. Life Church, we're never going to be the kind of church that holds back. We're never going to be the kind of church that doesn't move forward. We are going to do everything we can to see people far away from Jesus Christ experience life change. This is what makes us great. It's not about our programs. It's not about our preaching. It's not about our buildings. It's not about a strategy or location. It's a heartbeat that says anybody who wants to come in is welcome. And we're going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ unashamed, unabashed, no holds barred, around the corner and around the world. So today, if you want to give, if you're in person, there's a greater uh, a giving envelope that's on the seat right next to you. Or maybe you're sitting on top of it. You can simply take that out and, and simply drop in whatever you'd like to do. If you want to give online, you can give online today. And, and you basically go to the giving tab and, and select give a chair. You select how many chairs you want to give and what you want to give in that direction. Or if you want to text to give, those instructions are going to come up as well. But what I'm believing for and what I'm needing today is a thousand seats. It's only 50,000 bucks. 50,000 is a lot of money, but a church our size, this is nothing. And you may go, hey, I want to do more. Well, great. Just see me or see any member of our staff and we'll be happy to help you because we've got all types of expansion and projects that are going on right now to help minister to people right where they are. Today, let's provide a seat. Let's provide a chair. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes and we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to our own hearts and lives about this? Lord, I just thank you today that this is what we're about. We are about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And the gospel is free, but getting it out costs us. And today, it's about providing chairs. This is what we need. And so I just pray you'd speak to hearts and lives. They would provide a you're welcome or a thank you seat or both that they provide for themselves and for someone else. Maybe they've been a part of every chair campaign we've done since 2000. How awesome is that to be able to give yet again? Because they've been a part to see the miracle grow from 100 people to thousands of people minister to on a weekend. How are we ministering to, a thousand, to thousands of people? Because of this. You're welcome and thank you, chairs. I thank you for the generosity of your people. I thank you, Lord, for how James kind of cuts right to the, where the rubber meets the road and lays it out there for us. And help us to be found faithful. To never be that life-saving station that's, well, that's what we used to do. Let us be people that open up our doors, that open up our facilities, open up our lives to the messiness of people. 
in order to see their life saved because yet we were once in need of salvation ourselves. But by the grace of God, go us. Thank you. Your blessings be upon this offering in Jesus' name. Amen.